I keep swapping places with a killer. By Brandon Faircloth. It was in the middle of the night when I got the call. I'd been asleep for less than an hour and had to be up by six, so my first impulse was being annoyed, at least until I saw it was Taylor calling. Out of just about anybody that might call me, he was one of the last people who would do it in the middle of the night, and he was too conscientious to not consider the time difference between me in America and him in France. So, something was wrong. Sitting up in bed, I answered the call. Hey man, you okay? There was a long enough pause that I wondered if he was still on the line when he suddenly started talking in a rush of words. His voice was raw and brittle and just above a whisper. Uh, No, man, I'm, I'm not. This woman, she's after me. I gave a laugh, a mixture of confusion and sleepy irritation creeping back in. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. Did you call me at like three in the morning just to brag? Even as I said the words, I doubted myself. It could be a joke, sure, but it'd be out of character for him. Besides, his voice didn't sound like he was joking. No, not like that. I... Look... It's going to sound crazy and it's hard to explain, but I don't have anyone else to tell that might believe me. And I know it's in the middle of the night, but it's getting worse and I don't know what to do. My stomach curdled as I listened to him. This wasn't a joke at all. He sounded terrified. Swallowing, I tried to keep my voice even when I replied. Okay, man, I'm here to listen and help. Okay? Whatever it is, just slow down and tell me what's going on. And he did. The first time it happened, I thought I was having a bad dream. I woke up and I wasn't in my apartment. I was in a house I'd never been in, sleeping in a bed I'd never seen. That's when I noticed my hands. They weren't mine, they were small and delicate feminine. The more I looked around as I woke up, I realized my entire body looked and felt wrong. Getting up out of bed, I felt tension and weight across my chest and realized I had boobs, full tits beneath the pajamas I was wearing. I figured out which door led to the bathroom and looked in the mirror. There was a woman looking back. A few years older than us, but not bad looking. It's like a sick joke now, but my first thought at seeing this... This stranger looking back at me was that she was kind of hot, and I'd touched her boobs. Like I was fucking eight. Like I wasn't in really big trouble. Because I was. I moved around in front of the mirror, looked at myself all over, and even went and found another mirror hanging in the hall outside the bedroom. It was all me, or I was all her, or whatever. Except I wasn't. I didn't know who she was, or have any of her memories, but it was clear that she was a real person living a real life in Canada, according to the local weatherman when I turned on the TV found her driver's license, bills in a basket on a desk, and prescriptions in her medicine cabinet. I knew her name, where she lived, but not how or why my mind had suddenly been teleported into a woman thousands of miles away. So, I settled into the idea that it was a dream. It was five in the morning when I'd woken up as her, and it took me until nearly ten to decide what to do to get back to sleep. My idea was that if it was really a dream, maybe next time I'd wake up for real back in my own body. Sure enough, when I woke up the next time, I was back in Paris. I was sleeping on the sofa instead of my bed, which was weird, but maybe I had slept walk during my crazy woman body swap dream. Either way, I was just happy I had a reasonable explanation for what happened wasn't until the next day that I noticed all the emails I'd sent. 
I was looking back through my account for an old work email I'd sent the week before when I realized that there were six very recent sent messages I didn't recognize. They were all within a few minutes of each other the day before, all to the same address and all with attachments that looked like photos based on the file type, but which didn't load when I clicked on them. After some poking around, I figured out it was because the attached files had been deleted from my phone, even if the sent messages couldn't be. Using the email address on the messages, I tried to send another asking who this was. But after 30 minutes, I got a bounce back message saying that the email address didn't exist, though it didn't specify if it had ever existed or had just been deleted since the other messages and files were sent. That's when I started thinking about the dream again. It seemed impossible, but I found myself calculating the time difference between Paris and Vancouver and trying to figure out if the emails were sent during the time frame I would have been awake as the woman if this was real. And the times matched up. The emails would have been sent about the time I was laying down to try and go back to sleep in that strange bed. But by who? The natural assumption was it had been done by the woman I'd swapped places with. Of course, I couldn't say for sure I even had actually swapped places with her if it was real at all. Maybe I just somehow possessed her for a while and my body had been sleeping or sleepwalking or sleep mailing if that was even a thing. Except somehow, I don't think so. Part of it was just years of stupid kid movies predisposing me to think that if someone went into someone else's body, there was a body swap both ways. But mostly it was because I'd seen the woman staring back at me. Not her mind or soul, maybe, but it was still her body and her face. Still a part of her. And she hadn't looked like prey or a victim. Even with me looking out from those eyes, scared and confused as I was, she looked more like a lion than a sheep. And if that was true, maybe she was behind what had happened, or at least knew more than I did. So I tried to look her up on the internet, but then realized I couldn't. Not because I didn't remember looking at her license and bills, but because I couldn't remember the words from my time there. I could remember everything else with crystal clarity. I could even remember that there were words, but what those words had been was lost to me. This somehow scared me worse than anything, and after racking my brain for a better solution, I finally decided to just leave it alone. Maybe it had been a dream and my computer getting hacked or accidentally sending out some kind of email made more sense than me swapping consciousness with another person on a different continent, after all. But then it happened again. I wasn't asleep this time. I'd just gotten out of the shower when the world swam around me. Light became dark, My body felt smaller and lighter, and I gasped at the cool night air filling my lungs where I'd been breathing hot steam a moment before. Instead of walking through my bathroom, now I was standing still outside at night near a tree and a cluster of dark green bushes. The backside of a park or a recreational yard, maybe. The question left my mind as my... or. Her stomach lurched, and I had to prop against the tree as I puked my guts out. That was when I saw the man's feet. I knew he was dead right away. Of course he was. His throat had been slit, and his guts opened up like someone was field-dressing a deer. Stifling a scream, I took several steps back and looked around again. The killer could still be nearby, and something buzzed in the pocket of her jacket. Reaching in, I pulled out a phone, but not before feeling the hard edges of what I thought was a folding knife nestled against it. Ignoring the new flood of ideas rushing through my mind at that touch, I swiped at the screen. 
A small smear of red spread in the thumb's wake, but I only dwelt on that a moment before the words behind the stain caught my eye. Bad timing. Don't get cute and try to find me or tell anyone. I'm better at this than you and I already know who you are. Smooches. Looking around again, I started heading across what I could now tell was part of a large recreational complex. The trees and bushes had been at the edge of what was labeled a dog park, but there was also a soccer field and a baseball field, as well as a couple of different small playgrounds. I had no idea where I was going or how long the swap might last this time, but I knew I didn't want to be found near that man's body, especially when I felt sure now that this woman had killed him. I thought as I walked, and I was scared, but I was also angry, and I didn't know how much time I had. So when I felt like I was in a good spot at the other end of the park, I pulled out the phone again and found the email app. My chest tightened as I found the email sent from my account. Pictures of my apartment building, my car's license plate, several of my IDs and cards. She had almost everything other than passwords, and how could I be sure about that? Had I stored any of that stuff on my phone somewhere? It didn't matter. I needed to hurry and email her information back to me. Not to my normal email on the phone, either. I'd make a new account now, email everything I could find, and then report it all to the cops. If I did it fast enough, maybe they could... Phone remotely disabled. Screen blurred out except for that message written large across the top. When I swiped up, it was replaced with, If your phone was locked accidentally or against your wishes, please enter your pen to reactivate. Shit. Stuffing the phone back into her pocket, I made my way out to the street. I saw only one car there, and the keys in her pocket didn't trigger the lock, so either it belonged to the poor guy back there, or there was another parking lot somewhere else on the property. Either way, I started heading for the distant pool of light down the road. It looked like a gas station from a distance, and as I got closer, I saw that I was right. I checked my... her clothes as I got to the edge of the parking lot, but I saw no obvious bloodstains on her jacket or her skirt only a few traces on her fingers. Stuffing my hands in the jacket pockets, I ducked into the station's bathroom and scrubbed them clean before taking out the phone and wiping it down as well. It was as I was drying the phone that it occurred to me that I was destroying evidence, not of my crime, but of hers. Helping her get away with it while making it easier for her to be free to come get me whenever she wanted. Looking into the mirror, I stared hard into the eyes I found there. When I spoke, hearing my words in her voice sounded strange, but also strangely satisfying. Ten minutes later, I was in a taxi. Another fifteen and I was walking into the police station, hands clammy and heart pounding. I knew there was a risk that this time the swap was permanent, but I didn't know that for sure, and last time I'd gone back to normal, right? What was a sure thing was that if I didn't get this psycho caught while I had a chance, she was going to come for me sooner or later. Gritting my teeth, I pushed open the door to the police station lobby and went in. Across the room, an older, heavyset man looked up and gave me a nod. Can I help you, ma'am? I sucked in a deep breath and forced the words out. I need to report a, a, a crime. I... Uh, oh, God. It was back in my body. Looking down at my hands, I saw a small, smiley face had been cut into the web between my thumb and forefinger. It hurt a little when I flexed my hand, but numbing antiseptic cream had been put on it after the cuts were made. Blinking, I forced myself to ignore both my fear and the disorienting nausea that was getting worse with every swap. I had to find the number for that police station, warn them that the woman that was standing there was dangerous, a murderer, tell them where the body was and about the knife in her pocket. 
Getting off the sofa where I'd been sitting, I started looking for my phone. It was on the counter in the kitchen, and as I reached for it, it lit up and began to rumble. Holding my breath, I forced myself to pick it up. My hand started shaking as I read the text message there. Now you fucked up. The next time I came back to my own body, there was a noose around my neck. If I'd put myself there, it wouldn't have been a big problem. There was a small stool under my feet, and while, yes, my hands had been zip-tied in front of me and the rope bit into my throat, even at my full height, I could have stood and breathed semi-comfortably for minutes or even hours. I already suspected that's exactly what my body had done while she had been inside. But I hadn't put myself there. And every time we swapped, there were those few seconds of vertigo and imbalance before I needed to vomit. And just like the nausea, it was getting stronger every time, despite me knowing it was coming. I'd been in the middle of recording a long confession video this time when it happened. I debated whether to risk provoking her further by trying again to get her arrested, but in the end, I decided I didn't have much to lose. She was dangerous and crazy, and if I didn't get her first, I would just be waiting around until she figured out how to get me instead. So when we swapped this time, I'd gotten her ID card again so I could remember her name while I was there and headed out to an electronics store. I considered just using the camera on her phone or computer, but... I didn't want her to be something she'd be able to find or manipulate or explain away. My plan was still in flux as I used her credit card to buy a mid-range digital camcorder and a memory card, but by the time I got back to her house, I'd settled on making a detailed recording recounting the limited amount I knew about the dead man from before while making vague statements about other people she might have hurt or killed. I'd also hold up her ID and show enough of her house that there'd be no question that it was her. And then I'd email it to whatever local police department, send up an email and email it to myself, and then mail the memory card to myself as well. I shot the video three times. It's hard to... Act like you think someone else would act inside their body, especially when you want to appear both believable and unfeeling. She needed to come across as a sociopath, not some attractive but troubled woman that would either be pitted or, worse, not believed at all. I was in the middle of the third take when the world began to turn inside out again, and the next second I felt my feet slipping off their perch even as the rope bit into my throat, cutting off my air. I almost died right then. Would have died if I hadn't managed to hook two of my fingers between the noose and my neck. My wrists were bleeding from the zip tie, and I'm pretty sure I dislocated those two fingers, but it all happened so fast, and nothing else mattered except getting off that rope. I didn't have enough leverage to lift my head out, but I could turn enough to get a couple of breaths while I looked around for something to boost me up more. There was nothing, or so I thought at first. She'd cleared everything out of the way to make sure I didn't have a way out. Or almost everything. Because I did remember standing on something when I first came back. A chair, or a stool maybe. I couldn't look down, but I stretched out my toes, gasping for a little more air as I felt everything growing fuzzy. My toe hit, and when I stretched further it hit again. I found out later that the stool was lying on its side from where I'd knocked it over, but I pushed it enough that I could get the ball of one foot balanced on the edge of the seat. Just for a couple of seconds, but it was enough to let me yank my head free and fall, crying, to the floor. Several minutes passed before I started getting myself together again. Lungs and throat still burning, I looked around the room for anything else she might have done. That's when I saw my phone and a little tripod holder I'd never seen before, its camera lens aimed at me. She'd been recording it all. 
I watched the entire thing. It was almost four hours long. I guess she went right out, got that tripod, and came back and set everything up. Said what she wanted to say, and then got up there. Got up there and just waited. Waited for me to come back and fall. For me to die. I... I don't expect you to just believe any of this. I know you trust me, and I don't think you think I'm crazy or on drugs or something. Not normally, at least. And even watching the video, you might just think it's me. Because she's right. She's a lot better at this than I am. At all of this. I spent a couple of hours trying to make a convincing confession video. But looking at this video she recorded, it's long and weird and it's surreal because I know it isn't me, but not because she's not acting the part. Her movements and mannerisms, even the way she talks, I don't know how she's done it, but I think she's found videos of me and studied them. Even I can't tell the difference most of the time, and I know the truth. There's just one thing right before the switchback that... No, I need to shut up and let you notice it for yourself. If I suggest stuff to you, you may doubt yourself and that won't help you believe me. What do you mean? Are you sending me the video? I'd been silent through Taylor's story, not because I didn't have questions, but because I had so many. He believed all this, or if he didn't, he was doing a more convincing job of lying to me than I thought he was capable of, but now he was talking about this video, and if he actually sent it to me, it might help me understand what actually was going on. Yeah. I've been uploading it to a cloud folder while we talked. The fucker is 182 gigabytes, so it's going to take a few hours, but you should have the email link already. Just give it until in the morning to check it, okay? I know it's long, but watch it and then call me back when you can. Please. I don't know what else to do or who else to tell. Sure, sure. I, I mean, of course. I will, but... Are you okay? Right now? I mean, do you need some help locally or need me to call? I'm not crazy. Alright, just... Just watch it. Maybe you'll see it wasn't me. And then he was gone. I did as I promised, and by mid-morning I was watching the video. It started with Taylor adjusting the phone so the camera had a clear view behind him. I could see where an eye bolt had been screwed into the ceiling and a thick nylon rope had been strung and tied through and fashioned into a noose. Further down in the very bottom of the frame, I could see the edge of the stool that had saved my friend's life. My stomach churned seeing all this, and I almost turned it off and called him back or called his parents, but... They were in Michigan, and none of us could reach him in time if he wanted to hurt himself. Maybe if I just listened to him and watched the video, I could figure out a way to actually help him. It was then I realized that he was talking now. It's been really hard lately. France is great and all, but it's lonely. And it's all gotten to be too much. He looked away and gave a small, awkward laugh like I've seen him do a hundred times. So, think it's time to hit the road, Jack. Frowning a little, he looked back into the camera. I'm sorry. Goodbye. With that, he went back to the stool, climbed up on it, and stuck his head through the noose. After he tightened it a little, he pulled something out of his pocket. It took me a moment to realize it was a zip tie. Making it into a large loop, he slipped his hands in and then gripped the free end with his teeth, pulling it until it was tight against his skin. All of that was horrible to watch, and I had to keep reminding myself that he was okay. That I just talked to him, but none of it was as bad as what came next. He just stood there, silent, 
staring, looking through the camera at me as the minutes crawled by. There was the occasional twitch or shifting of weight, but that was all. Just a motionless statue staring at me for over three hours. It might sound boring, but I watched every second. Not just because I said I would, but because something told me I need to pay attention to everything. Maybe just so I could say with a clear conscience that my friend was delusional, but... Wait, what was that? The moment was brief, and then Taylor shuddered, pitching forward then back like a fish on a line as his feet kicked and knocked over the stool he'd been standing on. His hands went instinctively to his throat, and I saw exactly what he had described. Him, fighting for airs, he struggled for something to stand on, finding the stool for just long enough to escape the noose and fall to the floor. I was crying a little myself at the end. It was hard seeing him go through all that, even in the past, but it, it wasn't just that. It was that I was terrified. Terrified because I thought I was starting to believe him. That moment, that brief moment before he began to thrash and fight for his life, I thought maybe I'd imagined it. But I watched that little bit of it 20 times after the video was done. In that second before he started to hang himself, his expression changed subtly. Small thing you wouldn't notice if you weren't paying close attention. A little smile. No. A smirk. I tried calling Taylor back for the rest of the day, but only got voicemail and my texts and emails didn't fare any better. I told myself I was giving it until next morning and then I was getting on a plane and going to check on him in person. None of my plans or good intentions helped me sleep, of course, or made me feel less guilty when my phone rang again in the middle of the night. It was Parisian police. Taylor had fallen or jumped off of a building. The same building he sometimes worked from and had access to, though no one knew how he'd gotten up to the locked roof in the middle of the night. I was numb, in shock, but I still asked if they had any suspects or idea that maybe someone had done it to him. They said no. That from what they'd found, he tied a rope around one of the ventilation pipes up there and held onto it while leaning out over the edge of the building. They didn't know why he hadn't just jumped, but security footage showed he held onto that rope for over half an hour before suddenly letting go. Something else occurred to me then. Why had they called me about this? Had they called his family or anyone else? I was one of his best friends, but still. Why me? Because, they said. When they looked at the video, the hand not holding the rope had been holding his phone. He'd stared at it the entire time he was suspended out in the night air. The camera wasn't at the right angle to show what was on the phone, but when they found it near him on the pavement, it was broken but not dead. When they plugged it up, it lit up on what they think was the last thing he looked at before he died. A picture of me. That happened three weeks ago. I've been questioned by law enforcement in two countries and Taylor's parents multiple times. Did I know he was going to kill himself? Did I know he was on drugs? Did we have some kind of weird suicide pact? Questions got stranger and stranger as they got more desperate for answers that I couldn't give. Not because I didn't have them, but because they wouldn't satisfy. I wasn't satisfied either, of course. 
happened. At first, I was angry. Either my friend was having a breakdown and I didn't do enough to help, or he was telling the truth and someone had murdered him. Either way, I buried myself in watching the video again and again, looking for more signs to go along with that damned smirking smile. I finally caught something else, but it wasn't enough to convince anyone of anything. All it did it was make me more sure someone was out there, someone I didn't know but that could theoretically already know about me, and I didn't want to draw more of their attention. So, I decided to let it go. I felt like a coward and a shitty friend, but I told myself it was all pointless, and even if it was true... I wasn't going to fare any better than Taylor had if I tried to track this person down. And how could I? I had nothing to go on other than what he'd given me, and it just wasn't enough. But then I woke up in a strange room. It was foreign to me, but strangely familiar. Not because I'd ever been there or even seen it, but because Taylor had described it so well. Trembling, I got out of bed, ignoring the strangeness of my body and movement and everything. Until I made it out to the mirror in the hall. I was in her. Oh God, I was in her. I kept looking everywhere at once, and my heart felt like it was going to burst, but this wasn't a dream, and I was in her, and how was this possible? How would it be me now? Then I noticed the red letters in the corner of the mirror, written in lipstick, or two lines punctuated by the end of a small, smiley face, not unlike what had been scratched into Taylor's hand between his index finger and thumb. Hey, Taylor's friend. It's time to play. Staring at the red words in the corner of the mirror, I felt anger flaring in my chest. She'd murdered Taylor. And more than that, she was proud of it. Fucking joking about it. Boasting like she was some superhuman serial killer from a movie, always one step ahead, making it into a game because she's so good at terrorizing and killing innocent people. Well, fuck her. Unsure of which way to head first, I went back to the bedroom to quickly look for a phone, a computer, anything I could use to immediately figure out where exactly I was and send myself the information. All my questions of how any of this was possible or why it was now happening to me could wait. For now, I needed to make sure that when I swapped back, I was armed with the information I needed to find this woman and stop her once and for all. There were no phones or other devices in the bedroom or the bathroom so far I could tell, though I did find a wall safe in the back of the closet that could have contained any number of things behind its locked door. Feeling the pressure to get out of the house and find a way to get the information I needed quick, I headed back out the hall and then down the stairs to the front door. Turning the deadbolt, I pulled on the door and... Nothing happened. I pulled again and a third time after checking to make sure the locks were truly unlocked, but it didn't matter. The door never budged an inch or even rattled like it was stuck or straining against some bolt yet to be undone. Cursing, I turned to go find another door when I saw a small black rectangle sitting on a table next to the door. It looked like a digital recorder, though half its body was obscured by a small orange sticky note with two words written on it in flowing script. Play me. Reaching out to grab the recorder, the strangeness of everything struck me again as I watched the woman's slender hand pick it up instead of my own. Forcing myself to focus, I took off the note and found the play button on the side. A woman's voice began speaking to me immediately. Hello, Alvin. <laughs> the sound of soft laughter and then... 
I know I may be surprised that I already know your name. Truth be told, I know a lot about you. Once I decided what needed to happen with Taylor, I started looking for anything else that needed dealing with. Unfortunately, I'm fairly certain that includes you. Oh, God. If you're listening to this, then it means that we have swapped properly, and you've been down to the front foyer to try to get out. Looking out for a pride tool or another avenue of escape, you saw the recorder sitting there and decided to play it. And here we are. Or, here you are, I suppose. Because I'm over in your life right now. Finding out all I can about you. Who you love. What you fear. Who you really are. Things you can't find out from the internet or rifling through Taylor's phone. To say nothing about all the keys I can find to unlock every single thing that you've tried to hide or protect. That's fine, you may think. Turnabout is fair play, after all. If I'm going to snoop on you, you'll snoop on me back. Maybe find me and confront me. Which would be super cute. Or try to convince someone that a strange, hot woman in another country you've never met is a body-hopping serial killer. That should go over well. Still, I understand why you feel like you need to try, so when you're done talking, just check stuff out, or whatever you feel like you need to do. Just, here's the thing. You may, or may not, depending on how bright you are, have figured out that this is not my first rodeo. That is to say, Taylor was not my first swap meet, and time and experience has taught me a few things. One is how to live in the moment, and living in someone else's moments, well, it's a pretty big rush. To say nothing about someone like your friend Taylor, who actually did a decent job of playing with me. But another thing I've learned is how to mitigate risk. If you were starting from square one, like Taylor, I'd probably let you roam around the world for a bit, see how good you were at trying to beat me, but you aren't starting at square one, are you? I could tell from Taylor's phone that he had an extended conversation with you a few days ago, and since it was after we started swapping, I figured I knew what you were talking about. When I saw he uploaded my little video to a cloud drive, and that drive had been accessed by someone else, well... What do you want to bet I find a copy of that video on your computer when I look? No, you have too much of a head start to let you run free. Which is why... In circumstances like this, I've made other arrangements. The door you tried to open is made of tempered steel. So are the other two that lead out of my house. As are the bars inside and outside of each window. The windows themselves are made of polycarbonate glass, and all the windows and doors are secured with magnetic locks. As you may have guessed by now, the deadbolts are just for everyday use, not for when I have a special guest. There are no tools or implements inside this house that can be used to effectively pry, break, or otherwise destroy your way to freedom. The inner window bars are even too narrowly spaced to allow passages of a closed fist or foot, and you'd lack the clearance to ball up your fist or generate any real motion if you'd managed to squeeze something through there. So unless you're a kung fu master or something, yeah, you're not breaking anything. You're not a kung fu master, are you? Because that would be badass. If you are, in fact, a black belt or something, you will find that breaking that really hard-to-break glass will... Well, I'll let you see if you ever managed it, but I don't think I'm that lucky. So, what else? Oh, yeah. Phone. Internet. No landlines. No devices that aren't in a safe that you aren't getting through without a cutting torch, which I did not leave you, bitch that I am. Internet is killed with the magnetic locks are engaged, and the control for the locks is in the same safe that you can't get into. So, the short version is... Relax. You aren't going anywhere, and you aren't finding anything out about me. Just have a good time. Enjoy the house. 
I have churros in the freezer and pretty decent selection of DVDs. Remember, what's mine is yours. And what's yours is mine. She was right. I spent the next three hours searching the house, trying every avenue of escape I could think of, but nothing worked. I was so exhausted that I wound up watching an old comedy while morously eating a churro. When the swap happened, I kept chewing for a moment as I looked around bewildered. It was then that I realized I actually was still chewing something, its bitter, earthy taste sliding down my throat as I looked down at what she'd been eating. It was a dead pigeon. Crazy bitch had been making me eat a fucking pigeon. I was already on my knees in some abandoned parking lot, but the broken asphalt biting into my legs and the sound of distant traffic in my ears was all far in the background as I leaned forward and vomited hard enough to bring tears to my eyes and pain to my back and stomach. After a few more gasping wretches, I managed to get to my feet and stumble away. It took a bit for me to get my bearings, but I was about 40 minutes from my apartment, still crying a little. I started a long walk back home. I didn't sleep for the next three days. I knew from Taylor and my own swap back that sleep wasn't a requirement, but I also knew that it first happened to him and to me when we were asleep. So maybe it made it more likely to happen. That only made me more paranoid, as I was already suspecting that the woman either controlled when it happened, or at least could tell it was coming. Part of it was her already having her house locked down and ready when I swapped with her but it was also the video Taylor had given me. She'd sat there, staring for hours, true, but was that because she couldn't control or predict exactly when it would happen, or just her being the creepy nut job that she was? I couldn't say for sure, but I remembered her fucking smirk into the camera. She'd known it was about to happen then, and she was looking forward to Taylor hanging himself when he came back. The more I thought about it, the more... My anger and fear grew. I wanted to stop her, to get even with her, but I was also terrified. She could clearly get to me, but could I find a way to get to her? I was sitting alone in a coffee shop, alternating between racking my brain for an answer and trying to just sit and relax for a few minutes. I'd started going to public places and hanging out a lot ever since that first swap told myself it was strategic. If we swapped again, she'd have to waste time figuring out where she was and how to get back to wherever she wanted to go. It wasn't much, but it might slow her down or whatever her newest torture might be. But even I knew that sounded lame. The truth was, I just wanted to be around people all the time now. As though if I kept the company of others, even strangers, sitting in the same crowded coffee shop, I'd somehow be safe and hidden from the nightmare that was hunting me. That's when I felt a delicate hand on my shoulder and heard a familiar rasp of a feminine voice I only heard once, but recognized immediately. This place sure is crowded, Alvin. Breath caught in my throat and I looked around to see the woman standing there smiling down at me and gesturing to the booth where I was sitting but that's okay you've always got room for me in there don't you she slid in the seat next to me pressing against my side until I moved over enough for her to fully sit down even when I went to the far wall of the booth, she kept sliding over, meeting my eyes and smiling as though she was a lover wanting to be close in a shared seat. I didn't lower my gaze, but I still felt my skin crawl, and when I spoke, I could hear panic in my voice. What are you doing here? The woman chuckled and gave a shrug. Several reasons. Maybe the most obvious one is to let you know that I could... I know who you are, where you are, and how to get to you. Why? 
so you can kill me? Her grin widened as she put her hand on my leg and slid it swiftly up to my groin. If I wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. I could do it up close or far away. Make it look like it was an accident or a random act of violence. Like I said, getting to you might be the most obvious reason, but it's not the only reason. Or the most interesting one. I frowned at her and shoved her hand away from me. Okay then, why else? Snickering, she propped the side of her head on her upturned hand and stared at me. Well, to look at you, for one. I've seen your body plenty, but other than our little indirect interactions, I don't have a full picture of you. You know, your personality, your intelligence, that kind of thing. I glanced around the coffee shop. I could try to call or signal for help, but what good would that do? What can I say that anyone would believe for that would get her arrested or even detained? They'd probably lock me up and I'd lose the chance to actually learn anything new. So I forced myself to stay calm as I gave her a nod. Okay, why do you care about that? Her eyes widened. There we go. I like good questions, and that's a very good one. By way of an answer, I think I'll tell you a story. A story of how I was once like you. She wrinkled her nose. Well, kinda. She paused a moment to see if I had a response, but I kept quiet. The longer I could keep her talking, the more likely she'd say something that might help me get out of this, or beat her. So I just nodded, and with that, she began. I told you before that this isn't my first rodeo, and that's true. Twelve years ago, I was driving home from work one night when suddenly... Well, I wasn't. I was sitting in a hospital waiting room in what I learned was Kuala Lumpur, though that took me a bit to figure out. Turns out I was in the body of a 75-year-old Malaysian man whose wife was dying of lung cancer. It was very scary, disorienting. And once I was satisfied I wasn't dead or dreaming or crazy, I started trying to attack the problems and questions before me. First off, I was still me for the most part. I had my memories, my personality, things like that, but it wasn't a clean swap either. I realized this when a nurse came in to give me an update on my wife's latest test results. I talked to her normally, pretending like I knew the woman she was talking about and that I was saddened by the latest bad prognosis. I've always been pretty good at faking that kind of stuff, and I did improv for a couple of semesters in college, but I still gave myself credit for holding my shit together at the time. Just talking to her, asking questions I thought she might expect me to ask, while still trying to figure out how I'd gotten stuck in the old man I saw in the waiting room. It was halfway through the conversation with the nurse that it struck me. I wasn't talking to her in English, but in Malay. And while I consider myself to be somewhat worldly, I do not know how to sing a single word in Malay. I spent the next day and a half as that man. As disorienting and terrifying as it might have been for you or for Taylor your first times, at least you had me communicating a little. A touchstone to outside reality, letting you know that it wasn't all just inside your head, because... Even after I'd felt I'd convinced myself I wasn't crazy, the doubts would still creep back in. What if I really was this old Malaysian guy and I was having a break from reality? It didn't help that I kept finding little things that didn't match with my memories of myself. I'm not musically inclined, for example. But that night, when I went back to where the man and his wife lived, I found an old guitar in the corner of their bedroom. Without even thinking about it, I picked it up and started to play. It filled me with a strange sense of peace for about 30 seconds, and then it hit me that I shouldn't be able to play if it was really me. Throwing it down, I went back out to the city, prowling the streets until I found an all-night internet cafe. I looked myself up. I kept a decently low profile even back then, but I was less careful before this started happening. 
and it didn't take long before I found enough to know I did exist and that whatever this was, it wasn't me being crazy or just a dream. I spent the next few hours walking around trying to decide what I should do next, and I wound up in this little place eating breakfast as the sun came up. By the end, I'd grown more accustomed to that body, but everything was still strange. My eyesight was terrible, and my hearing wasn't much better. Everything was stiff, and whenever I got up, my joints ached for a couple of minutes until I got warmed up. Even the food I was eating tasted different, and I wasn't entirely sure it was just because of the locale. I was pondering this when suddenly I wasn't in a restaurant. I was in an airport about to board a plane. That's when I knew for sure that it really was me swapping bodies with someone else. The man had booked a flight to Malaysia within an hour of our swap, on my credit card no less. He was trying to get back to his wife, I guess, but by the time he was waiting in line with his boarding pass, he was back where I'd been eating breakfast. I never had a chance to confirm it, but this swap hadn't been his first time. Couldn't have been. He'd been on my laptop booking the flight back too fast, and to the extent I'd retraced his route while in my body, there weren't any signs of someone going through the process I'd went through of figuring out what was going on or why. To one extent or another, he already knew. Not that it helped him in the end. I couldn't remember his name, but I remembered enough about the hospital and area that I was able to keep an eye out for the obituaries. Maybe it was morbid curiosity or some instinct to find more pieces of the puzzle, but I didn't have long to wait for an answer. I couldn't recognize his name, and I'd never seen her face, but when his face popped up there a few days later, I had what I needed to dig deeper. Most of the information came from another article three days earlier. The man had apparently come back to the hospital to learn that his wife had died while he was away. Flying into a rage, he tore through the cancer floor before disappearing into the stairwell. By the time security came up and tracked him to the roof of the hospital, it was already too late. When he jumped... He hit a parked car and bounced off, crashing halfway through the window of an administrative office in the hospital's first floor. Big news in that day's news cycle over there, but as it turned out, even bigger news for me. Because right away he told me that him dying didn't affect me. I wasn't hurt or killed by what had happened when I wasn't in his body, so despite our connection, whatever the source or nature of it, I was still safe. What I learned a few months later was that his death hadn't ended anything either. That's when I swapped into someone new. You see, once you start swapping with someone, you'll keep swapping with them for so long as you're both alive. But once one of you dies, the survivor keeps on going, and in time, they start swapping with someone else. And while I've always suspected that my first swap had some experience and knowledge, I've only met one person that had things somewhat figured out. Her name was Debbie. She'd been swapping back and forth with people since she was 17, and over the years she'd gotten very good at it. What, for a lot of people, would be terrifying, she saw as liberating. Like she'd been chosen by God to live dozens of lives. I didn't buy into her religious hokum, but I couldn't deny that it was supernatural or at least beyond my ability to explain. So I made a point of talking to her, leaving her notes, writing her letters. We even got to where we'd talk on the phone as we became friends. Before Debbie, I'd always felt like an intruder or a voyeur. I'd found ways to make it fun and exciting, sure, but the uncertainty and mystery of it all made it hard to fully enjoy. Debbie helped with that giving me a better idea of how it all worked, even if neither of us really knew why. So, some people just naturally start swapping, like me, and so far as I can tell, Taylor. This isn't some long-standing phenomenon, I don't think. The best me and Debbie ever figured out, the only accounts that seem to match what we were doing go back a couple of hundred years, but they've ramped up over time. Still very rare, of course, and those... Accounts are almost always written off as fantasy or insane. But anyway, 
It happens from time to time. What is probably of greater interest to you is the fact that not everyone comes to the swap meet through random selection. If a person in a swapping pair dies, thinking of a specific person, there's a very high chance, no guarantees, but a very high chance that if that person is alive, they'll be the next one selected as the dead one's replacement. I broke in, unable to hold my tongue any longer or keep the anger out of my raised voice. That's why you had him hold my picture when you killed him. She scowled at me. Lower your voice. And yes, you were arguably a loose end, but I also had the impression from going through Taylor's stuff that you were a good friend, intelligent, and level-headed. Someone I could talk to and work out an arrangement if you were reasonable, or get rid of it if not. The woman smirked. Though I have to tell you, your little outburst is making me question if you're worth reasoning with. Swallowing, I gritted my teeth as I replied. I'll stay calm. So, what else did you learn from Debbie? She shrugged. At the time, not much. She was ahead of me, but there's no rule book for this stuff. You learn by experience, experimentation, and in the case of me and Debbie, collaboration. I frowned. Well... What happened then? She must have died, right? Or why else are you still swapping with new people? She stared at me coldly. Well, obviously. And it hasn't been the same since I lost Debbie. I've had a lot of fun, but the monotony gets to you. I raised an eyebrow. You're bored of swapping to new bodies? The woman snorted. <laughs> no, are you stupid? The opposite. I can go for weeks or months between people, and there are times in there when I get worried it'll just stop forever. That's why I try to make the most out of the times I get. By killing people? She smiled thinly at me. Yes, but I don't kill my swap partners so long as they aren't a threat or an obstacle to me. Taylor was smart and determined, and he would have eventually found a way to find me, possibly expose me. I hated to lose him, but it was him or me. Her smile grew larger. And I'll always choose me. God, I, I, I wanted to kill her right there. But that would be stupid. Someone would stop me, and I'd be the one that got arrested. Instead, I tried to think of another useful question. You know what's going to happen, don't you? Her laugh was warm this time. <laughs> See, I knew I liked you. Yeah, I can tell. I couldn't at first. I would have vomited my guts up the first time if the old man had left his wife to eat any time soon. But the nausea gets better over time. You get control quicker and you start getting a little tickle in the back of your head, kind of like an itch. It's gotten so I can tell when it's coming a few minutes or hours ahead of time depending on how it feels, but nothing more precise. I nodded. Okay, yeah. I knew that from the video. She frowned. I know you knew it from the video. That's why I made the video that way. As a simple test to see what you would notice and figure out. Don't make me like you less by bragging about something that only proves you're not an idiot. I flushed and started to respond when I realized how bizarre this all was. I was feeling embarrassed about to defend myself to this woman, this monster, when what I should be doing was... Sorry, Alvin, gotta cut this short. With that, she stood up and looked around the coffee shop as she reached into her purse for something. It was a long black pistol, and even as I began to cry out, she was already firing. Her first shot went through the man behind the counter, followed by two in the back of the old woman paying for her coffee. She turned then, shooting each of a family of four as they scrabbled for the side door. A couple of those she only wounded, so she shot them again in the head as they tried to crawl away. 
Someone had triggered an alarm, maybe a fire alarm by that point, and several people had made it outside, but that didn't stop her from emptying the last of her rounds into a young woman cowering beneath the espresso machines. The first of the police were pulling up as she threw down the gun and lay down on her belly. She didn't say anything, or even look my way until they pulled me down onto the floor next to her. And then, just as they were handcuffing her and lifting her back up to carry her outside, she met my eyes for a moment and gave me a little wink. They treated me as a suspect for the first hour and as a possible accomplice for the next couple of hours after that. They knew from the store videos that I hadn't done anything, but they also knew she'd been sitting pressed up against me for 20 minutes before she stood up and started her murder spree. I knew better than to tell them the truth, so I told them what would make at least some sense. That she was a stranger, an attractive woman who had just come up to me at the coffee shop, and at first she had seemed normal. We just made small talk, and I admitted it all seemed odd, but she was hot and I didn't have anywhere to be, so I just assigned her to see where it went. And she got up without warning and started killing everyone in sight. The cops didn't like that answer, but they couldn't dispute it either. There was no connection between the two of us that could be proven, and I could honestly tell them that I didn't even know her name. They finally let me go an hour ago, and I've spent the time since writing this all down as fast as I can, the real, true version of what happened. I need to send it to someone fast, because maybe it's my imagination, but I think I feel a faint tickling in the back of my head. Maybe what she told me about that is a lie, but I... That's as far as he got before the swap, unfortunately, but I think I can finish this for him. Most of it is going to be educated guesses, but I've gotten pretty good at this. Alvin swapped back to find himself in a holding cell. On the concrete floor, he found a wet blue balloon and an empty sandwich bag. He may have even figured out that I vomited that balloon up after I was alone in the cell. After he realizes how his stomach is beginning to hurt, he might even realize that the little bag had been full of a potent and fast-acting poison. If not, maybe the residue on his new lips will give him a clue. In his lap, he'll hopefully find the other item from the balloon. A small, neatly folded note for him I wrote hours earlier. Not because I had to, but because I saw no harm in it. Perhaps it helped him understand, and if not... At least it made the end of your game feel a bit more satisfying. Like saying checkmate when you knock over the other player's king. The note said, In case I don't tell you before now, if the other one dies while you're in the loner, you keep it free of charge. Keep your chin up, Debbie. The police talked to me again the next week, but it was half-hearted. They still want to know more about me and Deborah Haskins of Vancouver, British Columbia. Yes, it was true she'd somehow committed suicide while in holding the week before, but they still found it strange that there were no ties between us. I smiled and gave them a shrug. Spani was a good one. Young, healthy. No signs of neurological problems, and I'd known from Taylor's social media that Alvin kept in good shape. It was nice to be a man again, and if I'm being honest, Alvin was better looking than I'd been in my prime. Over the last week, I'd practiced being him enough. I was fairly comfortable, but I was still mindful of making my smile match the few videos I could find. Not too big, not too long. Just a small, almost bashful grin as I met the detective's gaze, maybe with a bit of my own twinkle in the eyes. I guess it's just a memory, but then... Detectives live on mysteries, don't they? He glowered at me. Don't be a smartass. I stood up and grabbed my jacket off the back of the chair. Alvin's taste in clothes really was terrible, but I'd have to improve it gradually so no one paid too much attention. I planned on staying here at least a while. Sorry, but I really do have things to do. His scowl deepened. Fuck do you think you're going? 
I grinned at him, one of my real smiles, just for a moment as I lifted a middle finger toward him and headed for the door. Anywhere I please, motherfucker. Anywhere I please.